0: Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash on which this podcast is being recorded. We do land acknowledgments as a way to honor the ground on which we stand and as a way to give thanks. Land acknowledgements also encourage us to engage in a deeper, rightful understanding of the relationships that we have with indigenous people today. The Bustoyo Shumash Foundation is a 501c3 that preserves and protects the land, culture, and history of the Shumash and indigenous peoples and the natural resources all people depend upon. The continuance of speaking the language, the sounds of their culture, is of great importance to their cultural survival. Learning and passing on the songs, stories, and dances of their ancestors is a responsibility that includes making new songs, stories, and dances that reflect what is happening today. With the opening of the Shumash Language School in the spring of 2010 at the Bristoya Shumash Village, Shumash elders Johnny Moreno and Deborah Sanchez have dedicated their lives to reawakening our memory by keeping the sounds of the Shumash language present. Under their leadership and guidance, current and future generations of Shumash will learn the Shumash Barbarino language. The primary goal of Wistoya Shumash Language School is to provide an avenue of practice and preservation of the Shumash language through songs and stories that be shared with all Shumash families. In this episode, I speak with filmmaker and co-founder of the Undocumented Filmmakers Collective, Set Hernandez Ronquillo. In our conversation, we discuss their filmography and the ways undocumented filmmakers are demanding and creating systems of authorship and agency in the telling of their stories. Because Set is a very proud Filipino, this week's song is Love Anthony and Maya's A Thousand More from the album Rock the Mic for Human Rights in the Philippines, Stop the Killings. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in July, 2020. I just want to know, um, how did you get to documentary film?
1: So one of the key inspirations for me, um, when I first, growing up, I've always wanted to tell stories. Um, and when I was a kid, I was really, um, I had an affinity for animation, actually. Um, and originally I wanted to be an animator, but then I realized that I can't draw. so. To be able to do animation, um, I don't have the skill sets. But um, when I first learned that I was undocumented, a lot of the media representation of um, the community that I'm part of was very monolithic, especially in the 2010s. Um, I remember, like, never seeing, you know, my family's experience, uh, often immigration being very racialized. Um, only, you know, represented as an issue that impacts Spanish-speaking communities, you know. So when I um, first got involved in uh, organizing, there is a person named Tam Tren, who is one of the kind of like founding, undocumented um, media makers um, in the country. Tam Tran was not just a media maker, she wasn't just a filmmaker. She was also uh, uh, she was also an organizer. Tam is an, an undocumented leader born to Vietnamese parents in Germany, but because in Germany, there's no birthright citizenship when she was born there, her family, they moved to the US, but because they ended up undocumented, Tam was a person of Vietnamese descent Born in Germany with no birthright citizenship, but living in the US. So what uh, Tam would always talk about being, you know, a person who is a citizen of the world, as she would say it. You know, I never had the pleasure of meeting Tam, but she was one of the leaders in the student organization that I became part of um, when I was at UCLA. The name of the student organization that I was part of was Ideas at UCLA. Um, and Tam was one of the leaders at Ideas. And um, Tam was one of the first people in 2008, you know, uh, testifying in front of Congress about being undocumented, you know, a person that is of uh, Southeast Asian descent, right? But often, like I said, in the media, you know, the experiences of the undocumented community is turned monolithic. Um, And... Cam's vision, you know, being a filmmaker, you know, the the first time I saw one of her films, Lost and Found, a three minute short, it was the first time I saw another um, Filipino who's undocumented, Stephanie, um, in this short documentary made in 2007. So that's how I—that was the inspiration, really, in many ways.
0: And you are—you are incredibly open about your undocumented status. Um, And I know a lot of us um, who are want to be allies for undocumented—not only undocumented folks, but also undocumented um, filmmakers—often have concerns around safety and security for folks who are undocumented. Like, do you have? a lot of concerns because of your undocumented status and the fact that you are so open about it?
1: Yeah, I think part of the reason why I became so open um, about being undocumented is because I didn't see a lot of people around me who were like me. And I feel like by sharing my experience, you know, then other people would be like, oh, here's another person that's just like me. Because if I, if I met someone who was going through the same experiences as me when I first learned I was undocumented, I wouldn't have felt so alone. And when I first learned I was undocumented, I honestly thought I was the only person in the entire universe who had no social security number, which was so fascinating and unfortunate because mm-hmm. I live in the San Fernando Valley with, with a big immigrant community. Um, it's just that, you know, in my community, especially Filipino undocumented community, it's not something that people really talk about openly. You know, and I think by me talking about it more openly, um, you know, I'm also uh, able to learn from the lead of other people who are, you know, sharing their stories. When I first became involved, I was very open about my immigration status to the rest of the world. I have the shirt that says I am undocumented, taking the bus, taking the 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 red line here in LA. With that, with that I am undocumented shirt. But actually, the moment I enter my, my apartment with my mom, I put on a sweater so that my mom would, wouldn't see me wearing the shirt. So at home, I closet my undocumentedness, but on the outside world, I'm super open. And the reason is because my mom was very um, apprehensive um, towards us getting involved, towards me getting involved, and I didn't want to have that extra worry. Um, and I think each person, you know, I think part of being undocumented is um, in our circumstances, being undocumented, it kind of falls on you, you know, like the situation of the system, it impacts us and we can't really control our immigration status. And in many ways, you know, um, we kind of lose autonomy over that. And I think for each person who decides to say that they're undocumented or who decides to say not, you know, not to say that we're undocumented. It's us reclaiming autonomy over our own selves, over our own right. narratives. You know, so I think for me, it's a choice that I take, and each person is going to have that different choice that they're going to choose.
0: Well, you know, I remember when um, you know Obama was um, in office and um, the early conversation around DACA happened. You know, what actually what became DACA happened, and um, I was I was concerned about that. And the reason why I was concerned about DACA was we don't know who's going to be coming into office after right, Obama. Right.
1: right and right.
0: I don't. I know some people say when I tell them like I was concerned like, like what do you mean like be And not that not that people who are brought here as children should not be citizens, but you know we have this transfer of power, and there's no guarantee who that transfer is going to be happening to, um, happening and. I'm glad that um, you know the Supreme Court was it this year or, or last year I can't remember exactly basically they, they essentially ruled that um, folks who were registered in DACA are are protected I think I hope I'm like not complaining things but you're dealing with the current administration whose name I refuse to say um, who really don't doesn't care about rules you know um, so I just I just want to ask, um, like, how have you, how has you as the undocumented people as a community been, been able to kind of like navigate that transition from uh, administration that was willing to engage and dialogue and work and be reasonable to like what we have now, unfortunately?
1: Yeah, I think for us, you know, in the immigrant community, especially those that have been involved for a long time, I've been organizing since 2010. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um, And uh uh, I think something that we always want to um, make sure is known is that uh, DACA did not come about because of the kindness of administration. Oh, it's, it was yeah. actually mm-hmm. undocumented youth, you know, who were fighting. Uh, in, in the beginning, Obama was very much against DACA. It, yes, actually, yes. and under President Obama's mm-hmm. administration, we had the most deportations mm-hmm. in this country, right? You know, so um, I think um, when when undocumented youth were organizing to get Obama to Mm -hmm. use his executive power to announce DACA, Mm -hmm. there was this understanding that we always knew Mm -hmm. that DACA can be taken away from the next president. You're totally right, Tony, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and to apply for DACA in many ways, you know, it's also a risk, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're saying that, hey, I'm undocumented here and just don't deport me yet. That's pretty much what we're saying. And and give, and, and and in turn also give me a social security number, social security number, and a work permit. Right. Right. Um, so um, when Trump uh, became president, you know, um, for those of us that have been organizing, we also recognize that Donald Trump was not the first xenophobic, you know, president. Oh <laughs> the, yes. The first, you know, we all know that. You mm-hmm. know, in 1996. You know, Clinton passed um, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility right. Act, a mm-hmm. Democratic president, where immigrants got criminalized at even a more higher level. So we recognize that whatever the party is, the administration, right. you know, organizing is a perpetual uh, activity. Is mm-hmm. It's a commitment, right, that we kind of have to engage in all the time. Um, and with uh, Trump, you know, when he, uh, when uh they decided that they're not going to continue to extend DACA. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just actually last month that the Supreme Court ruled. Um, it's not so much actually the Supreme Court ruled mm-hmm. that uh, DACA um, cannot be taken away. Right. Because it's an executive order, so it can be taken away. What the Supreme Court said is that the way Trump took away DACA, mm-hmm. Is capricious and arbitrary. Okay. I believe those are the that they use. So what they were just saying is that Trump, you cannot. You, this is not the way to take out DACA. Right. So now Trump is go, going through another process to take it away again. Mm-hmm. You know, in in a way that's more legal, I guess. So it's not like DACA is still here forever. You know, Trump is trying to take it away again. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, so for us that are undocumented, um, uh, my friend would always say. Uh, Undocumented people don't have the privilege of uh, planning out the future, Mm -hmm, you know. And mm I think for us, that is a reality that we're always navigating. Mm -hmm. Um, And at some point, you know, each of us kind of has to make decision over how we will navigate this reality. Right. You know, some people Mm -hmm. decide to go to another country, you know, Mm -hmm. the grass is not always greener. Th- this other side is not always the greenest side, you know. Yeah, I think there's always opportunities other in other places. But for some of us, mm-hmm. we're choosing to stay because it's the place that uh, for better Red- Red- or This is
0: home. Yes, exactly. Whenever you're trying to organize against any kind of oppression, it does it does take constant vigilance, and it actually kind of reminds me of a conversation I have with my grandfather when I was um little um about the about the Voting Rights Act. You know, because like I'm, I'm 49. I was the first, I was born and raised in the South. I was the first one to be able to like actually register to vote at age. I think I was like 17 and 10 months because in the state of Georgia, you could actually register to vote as long as the next election you were 18 by the next presidential election. Um, but I was the first one in my family able to register to vote without any like threat or intimidation. You know, so I'm, I'm like I'm one generation out of segregation. Well, uh, legal segregation. Right, um, right. but I remember having a conversation with my grandfather because he was always about me um like learning the learning the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. like basically he wanted me to learn what my my rights were. And I remember asking like watching we were watching something on the news about the renewal of the Voting Rights Act, and I asked him, well, how come they have to renew it every time? like why don't they just make it permanent? And he said, basically, his answer was um, because, you know, they could actually try to take it away at any time. So I'm like, oh, OK, that's why. That's why. And, you know, 30 um, something years later, you know, the, the, when they um, the same week they um, announced marriage equality, um, they stripped the Voting Rights Act um, of a lot of its protections. And we're seeing the consequences of that now. So, you know, we do have this fight. Unfortunately, it seems to never be over. It morphs and it modifies and and really the key is, I think, to just really be out there and and keep keep fighting. And, and it can be tiring, but you know, we really, we really have no no choice. And also, I mean, I also feel like it's not for us, it's um, for those who, cause we actually may never see some of the benefit of it, but for those who will come after. You mentioned that you did not discover that you were undocumented until like when, like how old were you?
1: I've kind of always had a sense that I didn't have a social security number when, when my family moved here to the U.S. Um, but it didn't really land on me until, um, you know, uh, like uh, passing through these rites of passages, you know, as a young person, you know, trying to apply for college, but not being eligible for a lot of um, access to higher education, you know, um, not being able to work, you know, um, and this was before DACA, you know, I learned I was undocumented before DACA, you know, so I think, it was just a reality that kind of was there. And then when um, life was about to enter this next chapter, that when I understood the gravity of the limitations or perceived limitations.
0: Perceived limitations, yeah, right, right. It's really interesting because in many ways, like when um, some of the stories I hear um, from folks who um, have parents who are undocumented who like brought them into the country are very... As far as trying to protect their kids are very similar to some of the stories that I like i heard in my community um like from my mother and my grandparents like back in during the days of segregation where parents were trying to kind of like protect themselves from the re- reality of a white supremacy in these ways because mm-hmm. you know because like black folks did live in these segregated communities and went to segregated schools they weren't actually a lot of times they didn't have to deal with a lot of the things that we call, like, like for example, the microaggressions of, of, of white supremacy that some of us have to deal with. We didn't have to navigate the subtleties uh, of that. And it seems like a lot of the things that um, parents do, and not just like with um, folks, parents who are doc- documented, but also parents of, who have may come from another, another country and who don't want their kid to speak their native language because you know, they don't want them to be discriminated against. So is this way that this this country, which claims to, quote unquote, be a, a melting pot, really isn't, because it demands a certain level of, of conformity in order to, quote unquote, be accepted, but then you're not actually ever really accepted?
1: For me, um, there's always this theoretical framework of, you know, being Asian, also being Filipino. There's this, you know, idea that, you know, I'm othered, you know, the perpetual immigrant and things like that. And I think for me, I actually have started to embrace that idea of being the other, because I think um, there's this idea, you know, I, I think about um, when I read um, The New Jim Crow Towards the End by Michelle Alexander, She talks about this idea of racial blindness comes from this idea that, you know, like, we're all kind of the same, you know. But really, what she argues towards the end is that we're all different.
0: Yeah, you know.
1: And how can we make sure to um, to see each other for our difference and be okay with that? And I think for me, you know, I am different. You know, you, you and I are different, Tony. You know, and and I think how do we make sure to celebrate and love each other, you know, as community members in spite of the differences that we have. Um, uh, like, difference, like, phenotypically and, like, in all the other ways, right? You know? And I think for me, I, um, as a person who's been undocumented pretty much most of my life, um, I um, I don't quite uh, identify with being American. I've been Americanized, I would say, you know, because I'm quite different from people in the Philippines. But also, I'm not, like, fully Filipino also in, this, in the way that other Filipino, and even like this idea of being Asian American and Filipino American, my experience as a person and my friends that are Asian American, it's just so different, you know? And I often have a hard time actually relating with other Asian Americans. So for me, I'm like, where do I fit, you know? I fit in my own box. I, I check the other, you know, and that's okay, you know? And I'm like, let me, let me embrace my being immigrant. Let me embrace my undocumentedness, you know, my, um, my otherness. Um, of course, not every undocumented person identifies this way, but for me, I think that's where I kind of feel right now. I think that's okay.
0: Okay, so people who know me know I am a diehard Trekkie. I love me some Star Trek. One of the things I love about Star Trek and the, the founder, the great Gene Roddenberry, is um he has this quote. I'm gonna like completely bastardize it. But essentially like, essentially, how humanity will not be fully evol- evolved until we have learned to embrace our small differences. Totally. Yes, and um, like that just like, it, and you think about it, if we were all the same, this would be a boring ass world. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I hear you phony I hear you. Yes, and like, but take delight delight. Like, okay, like you're different from me. That's awesome. Like, I want to learn about you. You want to learn about me. I want to celebrate you. You want to celebrate me. You know, and it's not a threat. It is not a threat, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you do see quote unquote differences as a threat, then actually that's a problem with you. You need to go over there and and deal with that. But my, my difference from you is not a threat. Like your difference for me is is not a, a threat. You know, we can we can celebrate those, celebrate ourselves and celebrate each other. Um. So I want to talk to you about your impact producing. So for those of you who aren't aware of what impact and producing are, can you like give people like a kind of a, your definition? How do you define that?
1: I, <laughs> I think about um, impact producing as pretty much a person who is the organizer in the film team, you know? Um, mm-hmm especially in documentary or in media now, especially, but impact producing had a lot of its roots in documentary, you know, like with um, with, with amazing visionaries like Sonia Childress, who's been featured in this podcast also. She's actually my godmother also in, as an impact producer. I, as an undocumented person, when I wasn't quite um, uh, into film yet, um, I often experienced how there were like these media makers, storytellers, researchers, who's always coming to the undocumented community um, kind of like asking us about our stories, right? Like, hey, can I film you? You know, can I make this documentary about you? You know, and I think also often my experience in these contexts is that folks who make social justice-oriented films have this idea that I'm going to make this film and it's going to change the world. You know, and that kind of framework overlooks the fact that before anyone even thought about this film before this filmmaker even thought about this film the people that they're featuring they have been doing the work on the ground since day one you know and and this framework of you know film you know this film is going to change everything doesn't take into a fact into account the fact that you know these there's movements, you know, that are the ones leading the work. You know, as Annie Mercedes, another visionary impact producer would say, you know, look at pictures. It's not films that change the world, it's people that change the world. And for me, I have started espousing kind of like this theory of change where we understand that when stories are put together and use it in a way that's strategic using cultural strategy, when we tell stories, it elicits emotion from people, right? And when people are emotional, when, when we when we give the stories to people, when people have this context, it agitates them. And that agitation turns into this desire to organize and change something. And when people organize after seeing something, right? You know, a visceral film that leads them to organizing, when they organize, that's how we get to change, right? whether it's policy change, advocacy, or whatever kind of social transformation we're looking at. So the impact producer's role really is to make the film a tool um, towards this organizing where the storyteller and the filmmaker, um, the world of that storyteller and filmmaker is bridged to the work of the organizers on the ground so that the film can be used as this vehicle towards um, transformation, you know? And I think for me, that's really the role of an impact producer, understanding both the storytelling aspect and the movement aspect and combining those together Mm -hmm. um, in the work that they're doing.
0: Full disclosure, I actually work with Ani at Looky Looky as an impact strategist, so I'm like,
1: like all my people, all the peoples, uh, my mentors in the house, yes, the visionaries that I look up to.
0: And one thing I notice, uh, particularly in regards to when people use the term um, "impact," I notice a clear difference between proposals written by filmmakers who are within those communities, BIPOC filmmakers who are within those communities, versus the proposals who are written by white folks who act who are such a kind of parachuting into those communities. The proposals by white filmmakers who are just kind of coming in. And I read, I've i read probably hundreds of proposals over the years at this point. If not, maybe into the thousands. When they talk about impact, they want to, quote, unquote, like raise awareness. Okay. When the when I'm looking at the proposals by um, BIPOCs, you know, th- it's not about awareness 101, if it's a social justice film, it's like, how can we use these fil- this film to actually make change? Um, and there's like a clear understanding of who the on-the-ground partners who are, or can potentially be, and how those organizations can potentially use that film to further the cost to get toward some type of, of, of a goal. Whether that mean, may mean um, empowering just people within those communities, so those people can see themselves or like all the way to the level of like making legislative changes. And that's a big difference. So one thing I've like taken on as a gatekeeper is um, when I see proposals from, from um, white filmmakers that are just raising awareness, my question to them is awareness for who? Some folks have already been aware, are aware and been aware. Okay, and then they wanna say like everybody. I'm like, no, you mean, like people in your community. And then sometimes people don't like to hear that. I think that those of us who are gatekeepers, even those who have small gates, we have responsibility to hold filmmakers accountable. And um, if they are coming to the proposal process, and I've seen this most egregiously when people are dealing with communities who are undocumented and, um, and, and indigenous communities, they'll use that phrasing, provide a voice for the voiceless. People have a voice, you need to give them the mic. Or in the case of Indigenous communities, they'll say, oh, no, there are no Indigenous filmmakers, or there's never been a film made. I'm like, you, Google is your friend first. You should Google Indigenous filmmaker. You know, I guarantee you a lot will come up. With that said, I want to kind of talk about what um, you, the letter that the organization you co-founded, the Undocumented Filmmaker Collective wrote um, in response to the International Documentary Association Award. So can you set that up for our audience who may not know?
1: Like I shared, I've been organizing for a while now. And, you know, it's not uncommon for my community to have media makers approach us. Um, It so happens that in 2018... I was working at an immigrant rights organization in California. And uh, um, there was a producer, actually, she was just an AP. So I understand, you know, like there's also the hierarchies in the work, you know, um, but this AP associate producer reached out to the organization where I work. And they were saying, hey, um, we're working on this documentary uh, in Netflix, you know, and um, we're looking for immigrants who are pretty much in these transitionary moments in their lives, you know, and we're, we're, we're looking for folks that you can connect us with. You know, is this something that you all can help us with? We had an initial phone call with them, me and my colleague at the organization. And because I also happen to be a filmmaker, um, something that I have been doing is that before this happened uh, in 2016, I started working on my own documentary uh, feature about um, my uh, about a loved one also who's undocumented and I myself being undocumented. But when I apply for grants uh, for my documentary, all the grant making institutions require me to either be a resident or a citizen. One application actually, you know, actually I should just name it, you know, because it was the case. Creative Capital, for example, I applied I applying for Creative Capital. Um, and when I got to the first page of the application for Creative Capital, it asks me what is your visa or immigration status citizen resident o1 visa or all these other categories or other i clicked other and i couldn't even go to the next page to submit or even apply you know even see the questions you know because this first page alone doesn't allow me to even enter right so here i am trying to make my own documentary about my uh, community and here's this uh, producer from a Netflix series approaching us, you know, asking if we can connect them to, if we can connect them, that shows you how much of an outsider they are from the community.
0: Exactly, like you, you can't even, you don't even know how to go to you the You don't even directly. know, yeah. you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. You don't even know who they right. are, you know? So they reached out to us, we had an initial call, and then one of my questions to them was like, um, are you all open to maybe working with undocumented filmmakers, you know, and including them in the creative process? And and the AP said to us, you know, that they're going to uh, share this idea back to their team. You know, and then um, a couple of weeks later, we got an email from this uh, producer and they were saying, so great, speak with you. You know, and at the end of the email, they were like, and as far as your question about working with an undocumented filmmaker, unfortunately, this is not an option at the moment. So though I love the phrasing also, it's not an option. It means there's multiple things they can do but of the multiple things that they can do.
0: They're not prioritizing that.
1: Yeah, it's not, even, it's not even an option, you know, like to uh, have an undocumented filmmaker. And I think that the, maybe the question for them is like, how can we work with someone that's undocumented who doesn't have papers? Are we going to get into legal trouble? The thing is, did they even do the research, you know, because undocumented folks are out here working, paying taxes. So clearly undocumented folks are able to work. Exactly. They're documentary filmmakers, supposedly closest to journalism right? And they can even do this research, you know? So even the credibility of that, you know?
0: Well, let me ask this too. Um, At the time you were having that conversation, do you know where they were in the process of making the film?
1: I think they were in development because they were looking for folks, though. Yeah. This was around July 2018. They, They reached out to all these folks, you know? Months later, I started my fellowship at Firelight and I met, you know, the incredible Rahi Hassan, you know, in the Firelight Fellowship. Rahi and I, um, are the co-founders of the collective and, you know, it takes uh, a team, you know, to make all of this possible. And we were sharing our experiences when we were at the Firelight Retreat in 2018, September, which also happens to coincide with um, Getting Real 2018,
0: um, the conference. Sorry, yeah, because the, the Firelight Impact producers as well, retreat, well, producers as well as the um, documentary um, group were at um, getting real.
1: Exactly, we were at getting real. There was this whole conversation, series of panels called the Colonized Docs. Yes, you mm-hmm. know, and it just kind of funneled like this energy, right? You know, and that's kind of like how the collective began in the fall of twenty eighteen. Fast forward maybe ten months around the summer of twenty nineteen. A colleague of mine um, at the same immigrant rights organization where I still work, I, I work at the California Immigrant Policy Center. Um, and it's one of the premier organizations in the state that advances um, uh, advocacy work for um, immigrants you know, of all kinds in the state. Um, and one of my colleagues uh, shared with me this trailer for a new Netflix documentary series. And she's like, hey, have you seen this? You know, and a bunch of other folks also reached out to me. Yeah. Saying like, hey, have you seen this series? Executive produced by Selena Gomez. You know, so I see it. And I was like, this looks familiar. So I retraced back the emails where, I, where we were in correspondence with this producer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I look at the trailer. First of all, the trailer just shows, you know, it's like this regurgitation of narratives about undocumented folks that we already know often coming from like this trauma porn kind of perspective and when i saw that i was like shit like everyone like a lot of folks in my circles were like you know oh hey like check out this documentary you know what do you think so what i ended up doing is i posted on my social media sharing that you know a year ago um, a producer from this documentary reached out to um, our organization and they asked if they could, you know, include undocumented folks. And when I shared, you know, I sh- shared a screenshot of our correspondence, you know, I don't know the full extent whether they actually even had an undocumented person, um, but my understanding is they actually ultimately didn't have an undocumented person.
0: Basically no undocumented people on the, any level of the crew at all.
1: I, I don't know the full extent of that you know but um but based on what i've heard you know from conversations after that my understanding is that they don't you know maybe the producers can correct me if i'm wrong you know but my understanding is that they don't you know other members from our undocumented filmmakers collective you know also shared oh i got reached out by this producer too you know Mm. so and like we corroborated it's the same emails pretty much that we all have been getting
0: Yes. Like literally,
1: it's just two people, two APs that reached out to us, but almost with the same text. So from there, you know, we were like just thinking, you know, like for for my own self, the difficulty of getting funded, funding for the work that I do, getting my film programmed in film festivals, you know, um, and then like, you know, Netflix, you know, a, a huge platform, you know, giving all these resources.
0: With a lot of money uh, and really a lot of power. Right. Right. I mean, really, Netflix, they can do what they have the power to do what they want. And it's just a question of whether they have the will to do the right thing. Because I mean, you can't tell me Netflix um, cannot figure out a way to like bring on undocumented filmmakers onto a project about undocumented people. And
1: to your point, Tony, you know, like a few months ago, there was also, I don't know if you saw the article about that's the documentary about Sintoya Brown that she didn't authorize.
0: Yeah, because I had put that in my Netflix queue and then I found like, oh, she wasn't even part of it. I mean, as much as this girl has been through and you are ex- continuing to exploit her, I'm like, uh-uh, so I took that right out of my queue.
1: Yeah, and I think, and what I what, having said that, it seems like there's this trend, you know, of, in terms of yes. how um, mm-hmm. these um, big institutions are programming films about particular communities you know, by particular filmmakers, white filmmakers, um, to be exact also. But to add insult to injury, several weeks later, another mentor of mine, incred- I, I, I have lo- a lot of love for this person also, David Felix Sutcliffe, um, emailed us saying like, hey, did you see, you know, that uh, Living Undocumented um, got nominated for Best Episodic Series? And, uh, you know, we're like, what? You know, they now they took out our stories and now they're also like getting these accolades and getting validated, you know, for the work that they're doing. And I think, you know, coming from uh, Getting Real 2018, there's this whole series of panels called Decolonized Ducks, but the same institution- I
0: I introduced them. I was like the, the IDA introductory person and was very excited for those discussions to to happen also frustrated not immediately so but at the the lack of action not from like our communities but um there's just and this is kind of something that's you probably speak to this too uh well actually you you kind of address it it's addressed in the letter letter y'all wrote well it's called an open letter from undocumented filmmakers to the producers of living undocumented in the broader media industry but there's this line in there and we'll link to um, your bio page to to it. there's uh, essentially a, a need for we need to move past the need for for empathy um well em- empathy only and you can you could correct my misquoting of this because there seems to be this satisfaction with just quote unquote, um having the conversation quote unquote having the dialogue and for me it's to the point when i hear a conversation and dialogue like with thoughts and prayers and diversity and inclusion i just want to cringe because i i it feels like well i don't even think it feels like i feel like it, it is a fact that some folks like oh we're talking about it aren't we great for talking about it oh we're wonderful for just talking about it we're dialoguing about it and people are being clear, particularly BIPOCs are being very clear. Like this is what we need, this is what we require. And then like, oh, we talked about it. Okay, we're good. Like, where's the action? Where's the action? And in fact, on on the Facebook page for BrownGirl.Mafia, there's this there's this um, story that's trending about you know Matthew Heineman and Alex Gibney got all this money from HBO to make this film about Tiger Woods. Some folks are being like incredibly vocal about. The the displeasure of that. Now, there are plenty of of Black and Asian filmmakers who should have been um, been in a position to tell that story. And in fact, the story is apparently the person who brought the idea to HBO, I don't know if they're a person of color, but essentially because they were only, they were editor, it would have been their first directing opportunity. HBO wasn't willing to trust them, so they gave it to their old standbys like Matthew Heineman and Alex Gibney, and now they're being called out on it, and 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 not and feeling attacked by by being called out.
1: HBO or the directors?
0: Oh, the directors, Matthew Heineman and Ale- Alex Gibney. You should you should not feel attacked. You should say, "Oh, like we, we maybe we didn't think about this." You know what
1: I mean? It's a learning opportunity.
0: This is how, what we're doing to correct it. That's
1: what you should be doing. Right, right. For me, like, also, part of that is, I think in the lens of the undocumented uh, narrative storytelling landscape, I think part of it also is when a filmmaker is telling a story, for whom are they telling the story? My former boss, yeah, for, my former boss, Lisa Valentius Benson, you know, um, would say, you know, uh, who's telling whose story for whom using whose storytelling methods and why, right? And I think it's such a powerful framework. And I re- I think about it in terms of the ways undocumented stories in particular are told. And in many ways, it's a microcosm of how stories of people of color are told. You know, when undocumented stories are told by um, often white people, the stories of undocumented people are told for the palette of mainstream america and to be honest mainstream america often means white people this is something that sonia childress wrote about you know in her article beyond empathy right and uh, undocumented people uh, and stories about undocumented people the audience for them is rarely undocumented people ourselves because often when undocumented stories are told Like I said, it's coming from these trauma porn lens of like how miserable our lives are. Our lives can be pretty miserable sometimes. That is true, okay? We're not like taking that away, you know, from anyone. But our lives are not just miserable, you know? Our lives are everything in between from misery to joy to glory and to fear and to anger, all the things, right? Um, And when stories about undocumented people are not told for undocumented people, Then undocumented folks are left, you know, this is our story and we can't even see it in the screen for us. You know, it reminds me of how Toni Morrison, you know, like she was interviewed by by, um, Charlie Rose, you know what I mean? And he asked, pretty much he asked her like, would you ever write a book about white people, you know? And Toni Morrison responds along the lines of like, it's like our lives have no meaning without the white gaze, you know? And I feel like in many ways, it's like the lives the stories of undocumented people mean nothing if it's not for the gaze of citizens you know of people who can vote on our behalf you know there's also this idea that when filmmakers make movies and media about undocumented people they can raise awareness so that people that are that have voting power can vote out anti-immigrant legislators like I said earlier, DACA came about because of the organizing power of undocumented people. Undocumented people who cannot vote made DACA possible. So I also want to like reframe this idea that because we can't vote, you know, we're not worthy of being perceived as audiences, you know, and that we cannot make change.
0: And also th- dismiss uh, the idea that there is no agency that you don't have agency, you do have a agency. One thing I wanted to um, kind of um, ask about is, well, I, I remember I read this book for, and I wrote a, view, a review of it for documentary magazine. Um, it's a book called by Rebecca M. Schreiber called The Undocumented Everyday, Migrant Lives and Politics of Visibility. And um, what, it's a phenomenal book. And what she does is she, takes um, she looks at art projects over a ten year period. and essentially it's the end of the um, the last two years of the uh, Bush administration into Obama's full term and how and but looks at doc projects by and about a documented folks. Really, she's bringing up a lot of things that we are discussing um, today, as far as like who the audience is, but also the, the effectiveness of the material that's out there, as far as like actually facilitating real change. One project she talks about was this project that was actually uh, folks who were uh, commissioned to photograph um pictures of um, undocumented workers. So it doesn't just, just talk about filmmaking, but also like also any ar- artistic endeavors. It was done by a white artist, can't remember the name of it, but the pictures that were picked to be in the, um, just the Library of Congress um, Rotunda, as well as a lot of other federal buildings, all were pictures of like quote unquote, like good immigrants. She did this analysis of essentially debunking that myth. And then there was another project that was done on the border between um, the U.S. And, and Mexico, where they essentially, which is, the project was very offensive in that they they basically found people who were trying to cross into the country Gave them disposable cameras and also gave camera disposable cameras to like the militia, the racist militia groups who are working on the border. And then I'm like, first of all, okay, how are you going to give cameras to these, these like kind of catastrophs as they're trying to like, Go, go into the country through these precarious situations against these armed people. And they were really trying to give like equal voice to the, to the folks who were coming into the country and the militia. Um, but like the photographs that some of the militia took were very essentially like posing with folks they had caught, um, handcuffed and like, you know, in, in shackles, like very, very slavery-like. And, but like try to like oh well they have both they both have points to this i'm like mm, no because like there's this people are coming to the country because you know these economic policies you know that because Adapta and all these other things there's a whole host of reasons and meeting with um civilians with guns particularly racist civilians with guns <laughs> it's not an equal story to be told um but then she transitions into um stories by undocumented folks and by undocumented artists for an undocumented audience. And you could tell, essentially these stories were obviously like welcomed by the undocumented community because it's like, oh, these are people like us telling our stories. But also these stories we were being used as catalysts um, for for action as well. Um, And so I, for anybody who wants to kind of read more in depth about this, who consider themselves an ally and to kind of get a clear understanding of um, the issues out there because one thing Re- um, Rebecca brings up in the book is like the whole funding situation you talked about about how people who are not part of these communities are given money to tell these stories and um, and really the the underlying thing is is that funders really need to be held accountable as well I see that every day like um, I was like reviewing an application of, of a filmmaking team I met when I was in um, Canada a few. Um, Years ago, the trailer was very triggering because it showed a mutilated black man's body. It was about a modern day lynching. I pointed this out. They were completely dismissive. I'm from Georgia. The film is set in Georgia. They wanted to tout the state of Georgia as extra racist. I pointed out how that could be problematic. Basically, I didn't know nothing. Um, But they've gotten a lot of funding. You know, um, it it is two white male, male filmmakers.
1: It's all the same system, Tony.
0: You mentioned Lisa. You worked with with her on Call Her Ganda, um, was directed by PJ Ravel, and that was an all Filipino team. Tell us what that film was about, but also, um, I mean, PJ and Lisa are such like phenomenal like people.
1: I guess it's it's really interesting you bring up this question, Tony, because being an undocumented filmmaker, I think often I get siloed as just undocumented, right? And uh, I think a lot of um, undocumented filmmakers also get siloed to just, you know, in the collective, for example, we have been approached by a lot of people. Hey, I'm looking, like, I'd say like 80% of the jobs that we get invited to do are like, hey, I'm doing this film about undocumented people. Like, I'm looking for an AE, an AP, you know, actor. can, do you all know someone, you know? But no one has ever reached out to us, you know, hey, I'm doing this documentary about environmental justice. an issue that impacts undocumented people. Hey, I'm doing this documentary about queer people. Many undocumented people, including myself, are queer. You know? And I think we get siloed into just a particular subset of our experience as humans um, and who we are as storytellers. And I think for me, having been part of the team for Call Her Ganda, Uh, And serving as one of the Impact producers. You know, I just want to say also PJ Raval, uh, Marty C. Cara uh, Kara alec Alekpala, Lisa Valencia Spencer, and Victoria Chalk, and Jean Chen. These folks, you know, I look to them, you know, in many ways, you know, um, they have shaped my um, trajectory, you know, in being able to pursue work in documentary. Um, And I think when people, uh, when filmmakers invest, you know, in other filmmakers, you know, and really trust in their skill set, you know, um, that's how we're able to really um, do the work that we do best, right? Um, and actually, right now, I'm working. On, I'm working again with PJ, you know, and the, the, the next thing that he's working on, you know. And I think um, when I got tapped for Call Her Gunda, I started off as an assistant editor. Victoria Trapp, the editor. She was looking, actually, and actually all of this stemmed also from Asian American Documentary Network. (laughs) So when when ADOC first started, they had this slack, right? When slack also was just starting to become, you know, a a household name, 2016. Um, I got into the ADOC slack and then Victoria uh, posted a job opportunity looking for an AE for her friend. When I submitted my resume to Vic, um, Vic was like, oh, hey, actually, you want to interview for me instead because their AE for Call Her Ganda was just about to transition. And when she saw that I understand and speak Tagalog, you know, and this skill set being the film, having the film being like reliant on a lot of archival footage from the Philippines and me understanding Tagalog and speaking Tagalog was so crucial, right? So, So I spoke to her and PJ, Um, And I saw, and Victoria interviewed me, and I was watching the first reel for the documentary. And I noticed what it's about. Call Her Ganda is a documentary about um, Jennifer Laude, a a transgender Filipino woman uh, who was murdered by a white U.S. Marine in the Philippines. Um, And it kind of explores these issues of trans, you know, phobia, gender-based violence, um, U.S. imperialism, militarism, relationships between the U.S. and the Philippines and all these different issues, you know? not Nothing about immigration, you know, in particular. Me, as a person, I'm like, I'm queer, I'm Filipino, you know? And the, the interesting thing that happened is that, actually, when the story first uh, emerged, when Jennifer Laude was first murdered, um, when Jennifer Laude was murdered in 2014, I believe, Um, I participated in a protest in front of the Filipino embassy here in Los Angeles. Um, And I've been organizing also with other Filipino migrant justice, transnational organizations, you know, like uh, the Filipino Migrant Center here in LA during that time. Four years later, you know, I I get tapped to support in this documentary, you know, and when PJ learned that, you know, I've, pretty much been part of this community, you know, about which they're making the documentary. That's when PJ like kind of asked me, you know, after, you know, they picture lapped, you know, being able to support in the impact producing team. I have no idea what impact producing was actually before that, you know, I wasn't part of the fellowship yet with Sonia. So when he was like, where's the impact producer role? Do you want to take it on? I'm like, I have no idea what that is, but sure. Why not? Yeah, we'll all, we all learned together, you know, and here we are four years later.
0: So what was the impact campaign for the film?
1: So for Call Her Ganda, there were pretty much a few um, items that we were navigating. You know, we wanted to um, be able to um, uplift the work of the folks that are organizing um, around issues related to U.S. imperialism in the Philippines. Um, and in this, uh, we had like this uh, meeting of different organizations um, in the U.S. and also in the Philippines. Our first brain trust or strategy meeting was this binational meeting between folks in Manila, Philippines, and New York. Um, and we had um, folks from Migrante, um, a migrant justice organization, transnational between the Philippines and all over the world, pretty much. Anak um, Bayan, um, an organization also that's transnational. Um, Gabriella, Gabriella is an organization that supports uh, Filipinas and diaspora. Um, and um, uh, through this impact campaign, we were able to partner with these different organizations um, all over, you know, the U.S. You know, we had trainings with different chapters of Gabriella. You know, we were able to build community with folks from Gabriella. They were able to use the film, you know, as a tool for their organizing work to politicize other folks, you know, in the Filipino community, you know. And I think for me, the other powerful thing is also raising the the visibility, you know, and really the power of transgender and queer Filipinos, you know. For me, call her Ganda, and having an understanding of the history of trans people in the Philippines of uh, the legacies of colonization and yet transgender Filipinas, Filipinos, queer Pilipinas and Filipinos are still here and fighting, you know, meeting Naomi Fontanos, you know, one of the organizers who's featured in the film. You know, it it just was so inspiring to be a Filipino, to be queer. And actually seeing Kalher Ganda made me more comfortable of embracing the fullness of my identities, you know. Um, and you know, um, and just you know be being so inspired by you know this work. Uh, the impact producer being impact produced <laughs> pretty much, you know, it was just such a powerful experience. I've worked with PJ, you know, and the other organizers also featured in the film. Set is a filmmaker who is seeped in their love and
0: passion for art and organizing and an overriding sense of integrity. They also remind us that despite the results of the election, things may not change for some folks. Set also drops many nuggets of wisdom when it comes to how filmmakers committed to social justice must engage with the stories of their communities. First, organizing is a perpetual activity, and that means constant vigilance, y'all. And secondly, protagonists trust us be responsible be accountable and respect that access when they invite those of us who are filmmakers into their lives and remember these lives are complicated rich and complex even though our life experiences may be different we have an obligation to hold one another up and celebrate the stories of people whose lives don't look like us i'm a huge truckie And the creator of that monumental series, Gene Roddenberry once said, if we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, to take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and be the diversity that is almost certainly out there. I contend we may not even deserve to go out the front door. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at what'supwdocs.com. That's what'supwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at what'supwdocs. Again, that's what'supwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Rennell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.